Get hold of him! Get hold of him! Oh, oh yes! Stay in the middle of the field! Let the other two do it! Go and beat him! Go up against him! Put it in the box! Shit! Get it on one side! I'll do it then! No better way to start an episode than to hear Mick McCarthy singing Aaron Avina shouting from the sidelines. So this month, 25 years ago, Mick McCarthy was appointed as Republic of Ireland manager. And to mark that anniversary, we're going to be doing a little mini series on each managerial campaign from 1996 onwards. So starting off today, we'll be covering the 1998 World Cup qualifying campaign, which of course was Mick McCarthy's first qualifying campaign. The beauty of covering this campaign is that the dramatics on the pitch were fairly well balanced with some of the dramatics off the pitch. I was only a kid during this campaign, so thankfully I've been joined by David and Martin, who no offence to them are a little bit older than me, so they can remember this campaign more freshly than I can. So in this transitional period between the Charlton and the McCarthy era lads, it was definitely a stale time for Irish football. So what was the mood like at the time? Oh, it was really, um, it was a very barren uh, spell at the, at the time, I suppose. Um, Jack had obviously been uh, mutually consented out the door by the FAI in December. Um, we had failed to qualify for Euro 96. A, a campaign, I know we'll cover it some other time, where the wheels literally just flew off, completely flew off. It was very, very quick, very sudden, um, literally just out of nowhere. And he sort of lost the reins of the players. There was players that needed to be uh, replaced. Younger players needed to be brought in, that sort of stuff. And it, it kind of been neglected a little bit. So, yeah, it was a very depressing time, especially because we were going to have a 96, Euro 96 in England. I mean, literally just across the water. First time in 30 years where literally people... So many Irish people in England could go to see the boys in green. So many people could travel over there. Very little cost, very little expense and hassle, um, especially with the, the World Cup in America two years previous. And, you know, we miss out on this. And it, it was a really strange time. I think the world w was on the cusp of a revolution. You know, you had the whole Spice Girls coming. You had Oasis. You had all this kind of, It was just a totally different culture shock. And football had desperately needed a, an overhaul. Irish football and modernization really because it'd been sort of stuck in the past uh for, for decades really and um it was just a very very strange time and of course as we're going to talk about a uh, very interesting time too yeah and kind of leading up to Mick's appointment so it was the February that he was actually appointed and it was a strange one because he was actually Ireland's first ever full-time manager and wasn't he offered the um wasn't he offered the role on a two-year or a four-year contract and that was kind of rolled back to a two-year contract in the end so even the whole nature of his appointment was was kind of bizarre as it was and then even some of the lads in the running I mean David you did some epic research here to kind of pull up some of the names that that could have been Irish boss instead of McCarthy so Dave Bassett, Kenny Dalglish, Joe Kinnear, Ronnie Whelan, Liam Brady, Mike Walker the ex-Norwich manager and Joe Royal so a couple of those didn't work out because Dalglish um or the leash had refu had been refused an interview by the looks of it by the FAI. Uh, Joe Kinnear just decided that the FAI weren't for him, which maybe he had a point. And Joe Royal wasn't given permission from Everton. So it was a two horse race, wasn't it, between Kevin Moore and, and Mick McCarthy? It was. Um, Kenny Dagleish obviously had just won the Premier League uh, the, the year previous with Blackburn. He had pipped. Uh, Manchester United, sorry, Martin, and uh, basically, yeah, I mean, he he was he was still in the game. He was very much still uh, a football man of that footballing time, you know. As we would obviously see in 2010, he took over Liverpool again. He was a bit, you know, time had passed him by, but Kenny was still in the hunt, really, at that time, and probably would have been a very good um, appointment. But unfortunately, at the time, you know, the FAI would have to, they'd have to vote on it and they'd have to do this thing and jump through hoops instead of one man making the decision, which is obviously what we have now. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a circus as always, a bit like when Jack was supposed to get the job and it, actually the parallels are quite funny because there was a Liverpool legend supposed to get the job in 86, Bob Paisley. And Jack ended up getting it out of nowhere. And then you had Kenny Dagleish, obviously another Liverpool legend who had won multiple league titles with Liverpool and, of course, Blackburn. He was supposed to get the job. And that was the FAI's president, Louis Kilcoyne's 
Shamrock Rovers' most favourite person. Uh, that was his um, preference, and uh, basically they were gone. They were gone through the interview process, and Kenny Daglish. Uh, from what I've read, just refused to have an interview because he's like, well, you know, I've just won the Premier League. Um, yeah. Actually, probably was right. Yeah, he would have been reigning Premier League uh, champion at that time. Although he was moved up to the board level at Blackburn, I think Ray Harper took over. But yeah, he, he was actually the current champion of England yeah, and champion, manager. Yeah. yeah, so he's like, no, I'm not gonna do. An, I'm not gonna take an interview for this. And of course, that went up a few people's um, arses sideways. And we were left with a two-horse race with, with Mick and, and Kevin. I mean, when, when it came down to the two, there was really only one, to be fair. I mean, Kevin Moran had little or no management experience. I don't think any management experience. And Mick had taken over Millwall as player manager and then obviously as manager. And he had actually brought in a three-five-two system, which we're going to talk about, which caused a lot of problems with the Irish team, that allowed an attacking, flowing style of football at Millwall, which might surprise a lot of people. And I think they were at top of Division 1 at the time. And they would subsequently get relegated. And I think when the offer came in, even though it was the full-time position, because the Irish management team had always been, sorry, uh, team manager had always been a part-time position, which suited Jack. But now, as I was talking about the modernisation of football, uh, they would needed a full-time manager. But the money and the, um, the money was nowhere near as good as the money he was on at Millwall and he almost turned it down because he's like, well, Jesus, how do I live off this? Because I think he had a company car and he had all this at Millwall and uh, the FAI were kind of offering him in comparison to pittance, but he wanted the job. Mick is very pr- a very proud Irishman, although he's born in Barnsley and he really, really wanted the job. And he also had the approval of Jack Charlton. And I think that surprised a lot of people when Jack, annoying the style of football, uh, he played with Ireland, being a no-nonsense, tough centre-half from the north of England. Obviously, Mick was the same, tough, no-nonsense centre-half from the north of England, uh, who actually personified Jack's style of football, that whole put him under pressure and being a tough note and all that kind of stuff. He was Jack's general on the pitch. So people probably thought, well, it's going to be just the same, really, with Mick. But then... Mick was actually completely different with a style of football, which obviously we will talk about. So it was very interesting. Um, and then on the day that he was actually announced, uh, Louis Kukoyne came out and said that, um, well, uh, Mick wasn't my first choice, which uh, caused a shitstorm in itself. So worth noting as well that uh, that the FBI didn't actually make Ian Evans his assistant, a full-time assistant manager. He was actually remained part-time even though McCarthy had taken up the, the full-time reigns. And, I mean, starting off 27th of March, 1996, his first ever game against Russia, and Roy Keane getting sent off in the 2 0 loss, kind of a, you know, a trail of things to come. And, you know, fairly soon after, um, he, he made Keane captain for the US tour. But even more notably, Roy Keane never showed up to his testimonial, never showed up to McCarthy's testimonial. Uh, yeah, uh, this is something that gets um, overlooked, quite frankly. Um, Mick didn't get off to the best of starts with Roy in 92 um, as a player, but then obviously as a manager, things got off to a worse start. Basically, at the end of the season, um, the FAI, because they failed to qualify for Euro 96, decided to uh, organise a money-spinning US Cup. That was normally the booby prize because the same with the US Cup in 92 and we, we we didn't qualify for Euro 92. And that was always, you know, just get the players, go for booze up and go over. Now, a lot of the players would like that, some wouldn't. And of course, Roy being the type of person he would, uh, he is, kind of thought, nah, this isn't, this isn't for me. So he actually labelled it Mickey Mouse, a Mickey Mouse uh, Cup on a, a documentary he did with RT the following year. And he said he didn't fancy going over because he didn't fancy going on a massive piss up. Now that's fine if that's what you think. But the problem was is that he didn't tell Mick about it. So essentially he just didn't show up to his testimonial. And he was actually supposed to the testimony was on the twenty sixth and Roy had been made captain on the twenty third. Now, there was a massive problem with Roy's commitment to the Irish team because with the last, and it was a lot of uh, criticism of it, because during the last campaign, Euro 96 campaign, Roy uh, had only played three out of Ireland's 11 Euro 96 qualifying games. 
And it was also the controversy because he opted to have a hernia operation before the game in Lisbon, the 3-0 that we lost. And apparently he had actually played for Manchester United before that. Now, this is something obviously that will come up again uh, later on in mixed time as Ireland manager. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the jury was out on Roy's commitment. So this doesn't help things when he goes AWOL for a testimonial against Celtic, which Ireland won 3-0. And, of course, he subsequently no-showed the game three days later on the 29th of May, which was a 1-0 loss to Portugal. And I actually remember this game. We were so unlucky. It was an 89-minute winner when we lost. And I remember actually kind of just hiding behind my couch, just watching it with my granddad and just screaming at the telly because, you know, I was, I was terrified we were going to lose. And I remember him just, like, threatening to kick me out <laughs> of the sitting room. Um, and after this game... Keane did give a statement explaining why he didn't show up. And unfortunately, it didn't, Mick wasn't aware of it until basically in a press conference after that match. So, not off to a great start, the pair of them. Uh, and I must say, that's completely on Roy Keane's, um, that is completely Roy Keane's fault. If you don't want to go to a tournament because you've had a long, hard season, that is fine. And I think that is. I think it's a silly thing to go to a US Cup and it's it's better to bring your young players because Andy Townsend said, I'm not going to go. I've had a long, hard season. My missus is expecting a baby, so I'm not going to go. And that's why Roy was going to be made captain because Andy Townsend was still the team captain at that time. And Roy was like, I'm not going to go because I'm tired. No problem. But you've got to tell your manager. You've got to sit down and say, look, Mick, um, I'm not up to this. I'm feeling tired. I've had injuries. Long, hard season. Give some young lad a go. And I think Mick would have... Um, he, he would have accepted that. Because, you know, why not? And that was the problem. Roy, as we will find out later on, didn't seem to like communicating to people. He would go to the press or whatever. He wouldn't talk to the guy face-to-face. And I think that was the problem there. So, yeah, not off to a great start. And um, we'd end up losing 1-0 to Portugal. And, of course, um, I think we had Croatia then next in June. Yeah, I think on this, is the, the context of the Keane and McCarthy relationship is quite important. With If you think about Keane had come in in World Cup 94, just before it, got into Jack's squad and everything. And he had a bit of a kind of spat forward Mick on a, on a trip to the US before. So they weren't yeah. best of buddies then. But you would have thought, you know, after Mick was appointed, you know, Keane was a very kind of, but he was the most influential player, going to be the best player on that team going forward. And Mick was going to need him. Um, you know, he'd just come off the back of a cup final double win with Man United against Liverpool. And looking at that, even the squads that played in that, you had McAteer, Bab and uh, Kennedy was involved with Liverpool at that time as well. And you had Dennis Irwin and, and Roy Keane. But Keane was definitely... You know, I can understand him on the back of the season that yeah. he, you know, he's just won the cup. He's probably wrecked, um, played a lot of games as well. And then, but I think it is a bit of a kind of a mark of the kind of lack of respect he probably had for Mick yeah. that he, he he didn't kind of make himself available and didn't communicate that very well. you got to also remember Keane had an atrocious relationship very young with the FAI over the years. And he was messed about. If you look at him at underage, really messed about, brought on tours, not even... The one player who doesn't get changed and things uh, in this in the match day squad, he, he was really poorly treated. And as we know now, Roy Keane, many many years later, he does hold grudges. So <laughs> he was going to be he was going to have that issue with the FAI anyway. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a great shame, you know, that he Mick would have needed him, and Mick would have recognised looking at the squad, looking at the ageing squad, which I know we're going to cover. He would have recognised that Roy, you know, is is a quite young then and he's going to be influential in that squad him and McAteer as well Bab all players playing at the top level in England uh, and that, that was the thing they were playing competitively in England in that summer of 1996 so um, it was going to be a big thing for him to kind of make himself available for that tour I can understand why he didn't go because if he's knackered and he's saying yeah I'm not available for it but I think the, the testimonial thing was also a little bit of a, a left a left would have leave a bad taste yeah. really that was, that was the thing, wasn't it? It's, it's, it's mixed testimonial. And I think it was just very disrespectful. And I, I think actually credit must be given to Mick for his patience and perseverance. I mean, he really put the team ahead of his own ego. 
And this would probably explain why and the years that this would go on, because obviously I think Roy was quoted as saying, I don't do friendlies. Listen, no problem. And I don't think Mick had an issue with that. Um, But I think this was sort of build and build and build. This was the start of it where, you know, Mick kind of lost the rag in 2002. I know we're not going to get into that yet, but I think Mick's perseverance here was really tested. And I just, I just, I thought it was a bit of a slap in the face to, to not show up for your manager's testimonial, uh, to, to not even communicate it, to just literally not show up. You know, I just, I just thought it was very poor, but, but Roy at the time, I think it was very immature as well. He was 24. And kind yeah. of just didn't give a shit. It's only in retrospect, really. It's like, so 2002 is probably the straw that brought the camels back. <laughs> probably, <laughs> a lot of, probably a lot of stuff that we didn't see. Probably an understatement. I think yeah, was, I mean, uh, even in the context of it, Mick Mick wasn't that older than him, really. You know, no. so he's got to kind of obviously yeah. he was quite young getting the job. Ex teammate uh, too. So. Ex teammates, you know, and, and that was the kind of thing we had. That Keane didn't rate McCarthy and stuff like that. Well, you know, he probably was a bit alien how Mick probably played the game to when Roy's playing with 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 different centre backs or seeing the kind of comparing him to Paul McGraw and things um, from '94. So he he can. He can just see it totally different, and and can be quite cutting, as we know. And uh, we we know there's allegations of like how he spoke to Mick in the past, and it's very difficult, I think, to go into that uh, as a as a player. Roy can think well, he's got to pick me; he needs me. McCarthy's the one who has to kind of back down because he wants him, and and a manager is always going to be has to manage the whole group to get the best players out on the pitch. And he knew that Roy was going to be the, one of the most influential players in that squad going forward. So he yeah. kind of just endured it. He kind of just endured the nonsense from Keane and he kind of just put up with it. And that US Cup, lads, I mean, it did herald his first win. Part of it kind of echoes the Stephen Kenny year at the moment. I mean, I think it was seven games without a win. Then they managed to beat the uh, the mighty Bolivia 3-0. And it was actually quite a big gap, wasn't it, between the, the appointments and the amount of friendlies that were played before the campaign actually started against Liechtenstein. You know, it, like it was about 10 games, I think, 10 friendlies. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of football, obviously, with with the uh, European Championships over uh, the summer. But I mean, uh, that US Cup, I mean, obviously, Mick wanted to bring a young squad and he left a lot of the older players behind. Um, I mean, if you look back at his first game against Russia, I know we we sort of skipped it a little bit there, the 2-0 loss. I mean, we we look at the age there. I think they had an average of 29 years old. You had uh, Paul McGrath, who's 37, John and Irish, 37. They're about the same age, if not a bit older than, than Mick himself. And obviously Mick was trying to change things. He was trying to bring three to back, which I know is a bit mental when you think about it. Uh, it's 3-5-2. And yeah, he, he really was looking to change things up a bit and experiment. And I remember the first game, actually, of that it was a 2-1 loss to uh, United States. And it was during your own... RT were showing the coverage of the match of a Euro 96 game. My uncle was over from America, my granddad's brother, and we were watching highlights. And he was cheering on America, which I found bizarre. You know, he's born in Cork. And I remember actually just watching the highlights there. Like, you see David Conley scoring a beautiful goal. And you go, oh, yes, you know, we're going to win this. And then all of a sudden, you know, Ramos got a goal. And then Reina, you thinking, shit. And obviously, this tournament wasn't shown on television over in, in Ireland. You were just getting highlights during RT's uh, Euro 96 coverage. And I remember the 2-2 draw. I thought that was just bonkers, the 2-2 draw against Mexico, where we uh, um, we were actually leading 2-1 at one stage. And then they got Luis Garcia, the uh, the um, the thorn in Ireland's side. Because I remember two years previous, he was the guy that got the goal, didn't he? Yeah. Um, I think he got a double as well. Yeah, I think he got two goals, actually, against us in the World, in the World Cup. But that game was crazy because... Uh, Liam Daish got sent off. Uh, Niall Quinn got sent off on the bench because of a dirty challenge in Conley, I've ne- which I've never seen before. <laughs> then Mick runs on the bench, runs off, and then he starts complaining. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, there's a big skirmish on the sidelines. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just crazy. But I really loved that as a kid. I remember watching that. And, you know, Mick did say at the time, you know, you're either with us, you're in the tent pissing in. Oh, sorry, you're you're in the tent pissing out, or you're outside the tent pissing in. And I was very much p- taking the piss out uh, inside that tent out because I I thought this was brilliant. You know, I I, I got behind it, and it, you know we were really underdogs then. And that referee who was actually disgrace, um, he got demoted after that game. He was an MLS ref, 
and he had something like sent off a ridiculous amount of people. Yeah. And he went, no, no, he, he was a bit mad. But the 3-0 win against Bolivia was nice. It was his first win. It was his, it was his first game and uh, first time, uh, first win in eight games. And it was lovely for him to get that monkey off his back. It really was because yeah. there was a lot of pressure building. Um, and that actually, that set up a few nice little wins kind of in the qualifiers. And then we went on a little clean street or clean sheet run as well. And because we had to wait a couple of months then until the opener against Liechtenstein. And naturally, that was always going to bring a bit of anxiety because of what happened a couple of years previous to nil-nil. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. five-nil win there, yeah. So, it was, it was a nice way to start the campaign. And the three-nil win against Macedonia at Lansdowne Road to get the, the ball rolling. Yeah. Um, obviously, unfortunately, Roy came back up again around this time. Uh, he was actually called by Mick on the 10th of August, ninety-six, And... It was to clear up the whole thing. So Mick hadn't met with Roy uh, until the 13th of August. They sat down in a hotel in London because obviously that was around the time of the Charity Shield yeah. uh, with Man United. And they literally had sorted everything out and Roy apologised. And Roy should apologise. He was bang out of order. That, that, you know, that's not... Um, that's not like, oh, whose side are you on? You know, that's not opinion. That's fact. He was out of order there. there there's no way to, to defend the way Roy acted. It was very poor on his behalf. So you apologise, Mick. Went, yeah, no problem. You know, you're my best player. You're my captain now because Andy Townsend doesn't have a lot left. This is the last campaign. You're going to be my captain. I need you to build a team around you, which is smart. Very smart. Um, and obviously, you know, Roy got sent off in Mick's first game. But then what would happen was is that Roy would get injured then uh, for three weeks with a knee injury on the 18th of August. And it turns out he actually wouldn't be available for uh, the Lechtenstein game. So, poor Mick and Roy. It just wasn't happening, really, was it? Yeah, and then to make things worse, so after those two wins, we play Iceland at Lansdowne Road. Before the mm. game even kicks off, Carl Durbin, the, the old journalist, asked for Roy Keane to be booed by the fans, which they did. And that was certainly a, a strange night for the, the Irish team, lads. I mean, it wasn't just Roy Keane getting booed by the fans, but there was... A number of rumbles that happened that night at the at the Player of the Year Awards. <laughs> yeah, it was an, I, I thought about it. Uh, you know, it was an interesting time that you know Mick speaks quite disappointed, really, in, in the Irish fans of recognising. I think it kind of surprised him. I know there was there was the call for from Cockle Durban in his article to you know that well Roy Keane doesn't turn up for Ireland, let's boo him and things like that. But yeah. a bit pantomime in the way, but um. You know, he in in the context of that, Irish fans have always been known for getting behind their team and supporting them. And you know, this was a, a well, you know, a World Cup qualifier. Um, not a great result, obviously, but I think Mick was very, very disappointed that the one thing he probably could have always counted on the Irish support w- was gone that night. Um, and you know, I know, you know, you've seen interviews with him afterwards saying he was just he didn't have any interest at all going off to them um, the awards. That evening, the FAI Player of the Year awards, which uh, Alan McLaughlin won, um, and it's interesting as well in the context of that, we kind of just, we we established then that John Aldridge retired at the game and and told Mick that he was packing it in. So again, all right, he was a senior, very senior pro at that time, and he was also manager, wasn't he? Um, but you know, it's a very very difficult situation for Mick again, and I think he's just disappointed in the Irish fans. Yeah, I, I thought it was a very strange. I, I remember the watching the game on telly and the atmosphere was just really dour. It was very negative. And that does feed to the players. And it certainly fed to, to the Irish players that particular day. Um, the, the problem as well, I think, we didn't have a centre-back and a lot of people wanted Paul to play. Paul McGrath. Now, Paul was 38 at the time. Or he, he was approaching his 38th birthday. And Mick had rang, had called uh, Paul and just said, look, Paul, I need to go with younger players, but they were bad injuries and this sort of stuff. And Paul, for for Mick's first game in charge, Paul was excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really was. Paul McGrath was excellent. I, I watched that game. He played alongside Alan Kernahan in the back three with two wing backs. And Kernahan, bless him, you know, God loves a trier, but he was dreadful. He he actually <laughs> was. He was. He was caused. He was caused for one of the goals. Paul didn't put a foot wrong. He was really really solid in that game. And unfortunately, because we didn't have a centre-back, uh, Mick put Roy in as a centre-back, which yeah. I thought, is, Roy could do that. He's not the tallest of players, but he can get up. 
he can get up high. He's a decent header of the ball, or he was a decent header of the ball, and and he can read the game. And he's you know he's such a good tackler, you know, and 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 he didn't put a foot wrong there. But the problem is, you put him there, you lose the impetus in midfield and his attacking ability. Who and he can control the game. He can get the ball moving at forward. The, at, at the time, he was more of an attacking player than a than a defensive. He was a bit more of a Michael Ballack type player. Yeah. I think he was. He was just always running for going forward with the ball. And then he'd become a box to box eventually. But yeah, it was very, it was very strange. I could understand the frustration of the Irish fans because I mean, three competitive games out of eleven he played for is not a great return. Now I know there was there could be different issues, but it still wasn't great. And we and we did really miss him uh, in that campaign. Now he did have a lot of injuries, a lot of personal stuff going on. Um, and then, of course, Aldrich. I mean, Aldrich was the full-time manager, player manager of Tranmere Rovers. And back in April, I'll give you lads a laugh here. On the tw- where was it? Um, he basically had to pull out at the Irish team because, uh, sorry, twenty-second of August, he had to withdraw from the Irish team because he had to stay behind and manage Tranmere. <laughs> the football league refused to postpone a game against Bradford, you know. So that 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 was that's where John Aldridge was at that time. And I've actually got his book here. Um, if you, if you don't mind, lads, I'll, I'll uh, read a bit. Read a bit out here. This really shocked me a little bit. So basically, it's nil nil. The crowd is like a damp squib. This isn't him now. This is me speaking. And he's thinking, right, put me off for the last twenty minutes. Um. So anyway, so I read in the book. Instead, with 20 minutes remaining, he sent on Alan Moore, the Middlesbrough striker. I was devastated. Five minutes before the end of the match, I made my my decision to retire as an international footballer. I'd had enough of Mick messing me around. When the final whistle heralded a nil-nil draw, I walked onto the pitch for one final look at Lansdowne Road. I had a lump in my throat, but I knew the time was right to quit. The fact that I didn't equal Frank's record was only a minor blow. I shared quickly in the dressing room and approached Mick. That's it for me, Mick, I said. Mick looked shocked and said nothing. And the team coach afterwards, it was his turn to approach me. What's up, Aldo? He asked. I'm finished, Mick. I'm retiring. Fine, but why? Mick, bloody hell. I've been away from Tramway for a week, which wouldn't be too bad if I was here to play for Ireland. But there we are drawing nil-nil with Ireland. Sorry, Iceland. The crowd are chanting my name and he put Morsey on instead of me. The crowd would have been lifted and I had I been sent onto the field and in turn that would have lifted the players. It would surely have changed the nature of the game in our favour and it might have got on the end of something and given us a 1-0 win. Oh, I never thought of that. Even I wasn't prepared for the response from Mick. My respect for him as a manager diminished in the time it takes to utter six words. So that is from John Aldridge's book, My Story. (laughs) That's one down that. Yeah, it's funny (laughs) because the thing about Mick, um, something that he kind of went on record saying, is that part of that campaign was one... To, uh, to qualify for France 98. And the other thing was to set up a team that would be the national team for the next 10 years. So the likes of Aldridge, the likes of McGrath, they were eventually phased out. I know Cascarino kind of stuck around till Euro 2000. But for the most part, a lot of those players, as much of a lift they would have given the crowd and as, as much of an impact they could have had, part of Mick's prerogative, as he's gone on record saying very early in the campaign, was to start phasing those players out anyway. And maybe that's how it just organically happened. And, and even when we spoke about Liam Brady last week, sometimes sometimes end, you know, the, the end of an international career isn't always going to be the most flattering thing for that player. Yeah. And then that brought in the rest of 1996. And coming into 1997, that's when Paul McGrath played his last game for Ireland himself against Wales in the 0-0 draw. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, no, that... What, I, sorry, Martin, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, I think that was a big challenge for Mick, you know, given his age and experience coming in. So he was tasked with replacing an absolute legend in Jack, who'd had a brilliant period with Ireland, bringing us to tournaments and stuff for the first time. I know it didn't really end very well with with Jack in the playoff at Anfield, but, you know, he, he no one really... Every, sorry, we'll have to edit this bit. Uh, no one really goes out on their own terms today. Um, and, mm. you know, he's inherited this team and he was going to have to ch- change things quite drastically and drop players who he was a teammate with or perhaps even didn't believe in his type of football. You know, we've got, he wanted to bring, introduce 3-5-2. Not everyone perhaps agreed with that, but they were actually former teammates of him that he was going to be kind of bringing that to them and saying, this is what I'm doing. This is what I believe in. 
I think as well, interesting, like bringing in Ian Evans, you know, and, and that he talks about wanting to re- rebuild Irish football and, and you know, get a, a team for 10 seasons in a way and qualify for regularly, regular tournaments. At that time, our, our fixture calendar, the under-21s, used to mirror the seniors. Yeah. So, you know, they would be playing with the under um, under twenty ones would be training at the same time, and they would play Russia at the time the senior team played Russia. But that was a—I I love that concept. I think that's something that really we miss out on now because um, it brought both squads together in a sense. And the under twenty ones could be looking over at another pitch and seeing the senior team and thinking that's where I want to be. Um, I, I think that was a really good thing, and I think Kevin Cavan talks glowingly of of of, of that. And also, the under twenty ones used to often play as well. Um, against the senior team, they'd have a little training match again. Um, so it was giving the managers at that time an opportunity to see these players coming through. Um, and I don't know Ian Evans, his, his appointment was important because Mick had to really push for that. And I know he was supported by others who, who said, you know, he was going to bring through this style of play at under 21, which would mirror the 3 5 2 that Mick was going to play at, at the senior level. Yeah, just, just speaking of actually Mick's. Um... Method there, methods there, you know the difference with Jack and all that. Um, just reading here, John Otter's book. John, John wasn't very happy with Mick's approach to the job, because obviously Mick, funny enough, inter- you know, he said, right, the whole thing of going for a point with Jack, like that Jack would do. Mick's like, no, no drink before a game. Um, and Aldo wasn't happy with that, <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm surprised with this, and I think. As well with, uh, I think the problem Aldrich had with Mick was that Aldrich is clearly older than Mick and he was probably a more experienced manager than Mick at that time. And you've got this young, relatively young man, he's trying to do things his way. And, and I agreed with Mick, by the way, and you're absolutely right, Martin, the way he was going about it and, you know, getting the under-21s to mirror the, the senior team, which is what we're trying, we're finally starting to do now with Stephen Kenny by marrying all the teams and the styles of football together. Um you know, he was absolutely right while he was doing. I do think, though, that Mick was very inexperienced. People do forget that. I think he was 36 going on 37 when he got the job. And he probably, if that was Mick, maybe from the 2002 campaign, and I think he learned his lesson, he would have put Aldrich on with 20 minutes to go. Because I, I think to Germany, when he brought on Alquin, who... You know, his back yeah. was in bits, but you bring him on as a game changer just to get something. And I think that was just a, a just a little lack of experience for me. No, you know, no, no, no big deal. You know, he, he was a young manager and, you know, he did learn and he was learning in a job and Mick would learn and he would he would really uh, cultivate himself into a, a very good and experienced and just a very good manager and coach. But yeah, I think that was <laughs> that was a major le- learning uh, curve because I, I know the documentary he, he um, McCarthy's Park. Aldrich goes in. Aldrich goes into a Mick as they're standing there with his tuxedo, isn't he? He's got one leg yeah. in, his, in his pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and John says it to him. He's like, he's like, "Oh, just let me stand in there." You know, it's just really funny. But yeah, it, it was always going to be an issue. Like you got players that are older than you, and you're telling them, uh, "Sorry, mate, it's over." There's always going to be that that bit of resentment as well. You know. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is he's he's coming back. He's coming into the Irish setup as a manager two years out from from being out of it, really two or three years out after finishing with the FAI. He's coming yeah. into it. It's still a bit of a mess. I mean, we could always argue it's never been sorted, but you know, the, the fact that he had to kind of persuade the under twenty, uh, the FAI to appoint a full time Ian Evans as an under twenty one yeah. manager. Um, we had the whole thing of no one wanted to follow Jack in a way because you were on a hiding to nothing. You know, because it was going to need a massive change. All that old school kind of mentality of the players, the things that people brought into, the players brought into under under Jack and got results, that was all going away towards the end. You know, there was a reason we didn't qualify for Euro 96, you know, and that was the famous, you know, the, what's the Fisher restaurant where they started eating? Harry Ramson's. Harry Ramson's challenge and stuff. And <laughs> it seemed that all that kind of thing was happening. Um, you know, we were getting a bit more commercial. You know, sadly, money does... You know, where the Premier League is is three or four years into into fruition at that stage, there was all these kind of deals and stuff like that going on. Money was sponsorship was probably more and more important then at that time. You know, all all Jack's kind of side dealings and things, and it was just a bit off the cuff with Jack. And I think Mick probably recognised we need to be a bit more professional here. That wasn't going to go down 
well with all them players he'd managed and played with uh, over the years. So, you know, he he was he could he's not full as well. He probably saw what he was going to be inheriting, and he wanted to keep some of them senior pros in with him for for the time. But he probably could cut a few of them loose. You know, he could have. I mean, Paul McGrath approaching thirty eight. You know, his best years were behind him, and sadly, again, when you're cutting players who are absolute legends loose. Some fans aren't going to remember that no. and they're going to want, I mean, really, in the context of it, all the players who were going to be leaving that, that period of the senior team at that time were all legends and had been at tournaments for Ireland and Mick was going to be the one who was discarding them. So he really was up against it that way. And then he's still charged with bringing younger players through and, and kind of blending them into the team. And that's where I think the disappointment thing would be with Keane. Um, and even McAteer and things like that, you know, they they never really kicked on in the way for Ireland that way of, of bonding everyone together and stuff. And we needed basically a bit of a kick up the arse a long time later when Robbie and Duffer come through to really to qualify again. So yeah, it was a bit uh, of a, a long time waiting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Mick uh, had has. I mean, you talk about the, the shadow we had to try and jump out of. Um, I mean, and his first game, they were handing out copies of Charlton years. Yeah. The video. Yeah. At his first game, and yeah, that's pretty cool if you get it. It's a great documentary if you ever, you know, if you've never seen it, anyone listening. Yeah. But that's at your first game, and you're thinking, right, lads, you're not really helping me here. You know, we need to sort of not forget Jack, but we need to kind of push that back into, you know, in into the into the rear view mirror there, like because you know this we we need to to go forward. And don't think also it didn't help Mick as well when he's getting into these legends is that. He's not getting great results, as we're going to we're going to talk about in a second, uh, with the next result coming up, uh, this game in Escafia. But he wasn't getting the results, and, and he never was. You know, he was never going to get the great results because he had such a mess to sort out, and a very unbalanced side. He had either players. He seemed to have players in their uh, late thirties or teenagers, and yeah. the ones in their twenties, like McAteer and Keane, just for whatever reason, and Staunton as well, just seemed to always be injured. So he, he didn't, he just didn't have any balance, you know? So I, I really felt bad for him. But, you know, obviously with the next game, Nick, uh, mm. I don't know, did you ever see this one, the one in Skopje? Seen the highlights, all right. Um, I was yeah. very young when it was actually played, but, yeah, coming into 97, and even in the lead-up, lads, um, I mean, Paul McGrath played his last game at that stage against Wales. So was it there before they were going to get on the on the plane? Yeah, he withdrew due to his Achilles, but wink, wink. Seemed, yeah, it seems <laughs> to have transpired that it was more of an Achilles heel rather than his Achilles. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice play of words there, Nick. Um, yeah, it's it's so funny when I was doing I was doing some research for this, as you know, and I was going through the uh, the Irish Times. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know he's having an Achilles injury and all this stuff. And then you see, like, uh, Mick on the McCarthy's Park. So do you want to tell us more about, um, you know, the, the Achilles? It's like, and Mick, it's like, no. <laughs> and the guy interviewing him obviously knows exactly what's gone down. Yeah. As I'm sure everyone did. So basically, yeah, I, I was doing, for anyone unaware, of course, we'll go through the story. But, yeah, an hour before they were due to leave and, take, and go to the airport, Paul McGrath pulled out with a, a, an Achilles injury officially. But what happened was, was that they were all taken off to a Brian Adams concert, uh, much against the will of Paul. He just, according to his book, he just wanted to stay in bed. Uh, Mick was like, no, we all go as a team, which I understand. But then again, it's that lack of experience. You know, Paul McGrath was a very different cat, very, very special player. Granted, he's 38, still do a job. He still was doing a job for Ireland and he was doing a job for Derby at the time. And he insisted he goes out and he did. And he proceeded to get absolutely smashed. And he was rooming with Steve Staunton at the time. And unfortunately, Mick saw the state he was in. And that's he just goes, right, that's it. You're out. And he just, he couldn't get out of bed. He was off his face on tranquilizers and he was still drunk from the night before. And he was in an absolute mess. And that was it. He just wouldn't uh, travel. Mick did say to him before he left, he said, you know, I hope you get yourself better. But that was it. He, he didn't travel because of that. And uh, we had game, well, game, game went well then. Well, brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember watching this on the telly and I'd never heard of Macedonia. 
I, you know, I was only what twelve at a time. I thought, oh, fucking, you know, where's Macedonia? And I remember we took a lead through McLaughlin. Thought, oh, grand, lovely start. And we were wearing the now infamous orange jersey. Yeah, the orange jerseys, yeah, which yeah. haven't been seen since. <laughs> no, <laughs> which uh, we did wear it for one more game against Mexico at home. Fully enough, I think we wore it um, against. We wore it twice after that. I think once in America. I could be wrong. No, no, sorry. We wore against Mexico at home, yeah, in, in 98 in the friendly. And that was about it. I, I think it's a very nice jersey. But anyway. Well, well we, just, we just associated with having a Macedonia. Yes, we do. And Jason McAteer have the T-shirt wearing a Macedonia. Uh, yeah, oh, well, he certainly had a Macedonia when he kung fu kicked um, your man at the end. Jesus, I remember that. <laughs> like, we were 3-1 down. It was actually a really good game. It was, it was very end-to-end. And then I remember him at the end just kicking this guy in the throat thinking how did how did he not kill this guy and then there's like the famous you know he's been dragged off by tony hickey the security guy and he's like what <laughs> what you know i never touched him you know and he's almost just fucking killed this guy um there was also an issue i think this was the last time as well one of the last times that we would play this uh now infamous 352 there were rumors that make it had a bust up with andy townsend yeah. who was still the captain about this they weren't happy with it they wanted to go back to 442 because they just were not comfortable it didn't probably didn't have the players uh, to play a 352 at the time yeah so certainly a game that went down in Macedonia folklore and you know that having a macedonia is still a term that's bandied around a little bit and then the next game after that was another loss one nil to romania one i believe that we were unlucky to lose yeah, I remember watching this on the telly. Um, we played really well at this game. And we had actually gone back to the 4-4-2. Um, they, they dropped the dreaded 3-5-2. And we actually missed a penalty. In fact, I remember Romania scored against the run of play. Illy did. And then we missed a penalty. It was a beautiful move, remember. It was a lovely pass by David Conley. And Ray Houghton got taken out of it. And for some reason, Roy Keane took the penalty, which I have never, ever seen um before and <laughs> never want to see it but it was actually it's actually a decent penalty if you look back at it to be fair it's actually a really good save but yeah it's good height, it's good uh, height i think yeah yeah you, you know it needs to be up higher down low but it, yeah it wasn't the worst penalty but yeah it could have been a lot better um but i remember reading about this Eamon duffy predicted Romania to win four nil now now duffy obviously <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Duffy obviously hated McCarthy. Thankfully, they've amended all that now. Um, but he had hated McCarthy as a player because he was the guy that kept, you know, he he personified the Charlton style of football that Eamon hated. He also kept um, David O'Leary out of the out of the team, uh, and Eamon kind of just held on to that and was definitely out uh, for blood with Mick, you know, and and obviously sensing. But we're very very unlucky in that game. And I think that was kind of that started to turn things a little bit for Mick in his favour, um, because yeah, it was a very good performance. Yeah, we more or less had to win every game after that, didn't we? But I think we dropped points against Lithuania, wasn't it, at home? So we beat Lit Lichnid. I, I never know how to say it, lads. Lichnidstein. Lichnidstein. <laughs> I should know because you know it's gone down in history with us. But then, yeah, so that five 0 win, and then we draw nil nil with Lithuania then. And then that kind of led us up to the last two games against Iceland and Lithuanian in the re- in the return game um, in Vilnius. So taking the Iceland match, uh, the Iceland match lads, and, and something that probably isn't mentioned that much, it was around the time of Princess Diana's funeral, or her death and funeral. And didn't they wear um, didn't they wear black armbands and have a minute silence for her? I know we're veering off football, but it's just an interesting thing to touch on. Yeah, yeah, I was a bit. I was a bit surprised by all that, um, that for a British princess, the Irish national team would wear black armbands. And it's the, their footage of them watching watching the funeral in yeah. Altel, yeah. And look, I think some of the Irish-born ones were a bit, uh, really, and then some of the English-born ones were, you know, were, were sort of very, you know, they were touched by it. Mick said he was touched by it, didn't he? He said he was, um, he was very sort of like sad about it and he got a bit upset by it, which is a little bit... Okay, you know, f- fair. If that's the case, uh, the FBI also because the game was on the day of her funeral, and the FBI were actually looking to push the game back, but that was up to the Iceland FA. And you're going, oh, right? You know, this is. I know a lot of our players are English born, but <clears throat> excuse me, I don't see how that would. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm being a bit unfair, but I do remember when when Princess Diana died, 
Martin, I, I don't know if you remember this, but mm. I remember the UK. Um, I was living in Ireland at the time, but I remember the UK sort of just went into a lockdown of sorts. It did, yeah. Because uh, yeah. do, do you remember Sky wouldn't show ads? They would actually show when they would show Simpsons all day. <coughs> Excuse me. They would show the Simpsons all day. They just completely changed their uh, their TV schedule. And when it was supposed to be an ad break, they just had stills of Princess Diana. And then we'll go back to the to the thing. It was really weird. Yeah, it was a really strange time. I remember that like distinctly that, and um, because I remember in- England played the same night, and it was a big thing about um, I think even even about some of the songs and the minute silence they did there at Wembley. It was all I'm not sure if Gaza played in it or was crying or something. Anyway, it was quite iconic football wise. But yeah, it was weird wearing the black armbands and stuff. I know this kind of got a little bit of a mention recently when um, when you know various politi- political or religious things get kind of put round it, um, with relation to football now these days and I know Ireland when they famously got fined for the uh, commemorate, commemorative jerseys uh, for 1916 and they got the, another another fine they got um, for that and they were harping back to well they wore black armbands then for the you know to to remember Diana um, yeah it's a really weird one really really yeah. strange time not a bad game either lads 4-2 after oh, being 2-1 down. We, we don't really game. see that anymore. No, that was a cracking game of football. Yet again, that was another one I was watching on RTE. And uh, I think uh, it was one of the ones, we don't have it anymore, but where George Hamilton's on the telephone. <laughs> uh, I, I remember watching the Champions League when Man United were finally allowed into the Champions League. And Clive Tilsley was sitting in a bus broadcasting on the phone. Um, you know, like the old Olympic style stadiums in the middle of Eastern Europe, and it's like three o'clock in an afternoon on ITV. And I, rem- I always remember when uh, you just see this ball hitting a bus, and all you hear is boom, and Clive Tilsley going, oh, and that's the uh, ball hitting our bus here. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it just always amazes me the, the away games back in the day where, you know, even in 1997, you still had George Hamilton on the phone. Uh, but yeah, it was a very interesting game of football. They took. We took an early lead. They went ahead again. This game was important because we were left uh, with, obviously, Romania were away in a hack. Like, yeah. it was dead rubber with them. But we were actually, uh, we needed to win these next two games. Or we were out. Lithuania were going to take us. We're going to take our playoff space. Yeah, because they only missed uh, out by a point in the end. And they think they ended up on 17 points. We ended up on the 18. Yeah. And they couldn't touch us. It was yeah. really, it was crazy. But this was a great game. And for me, don't know how Martin feels about this. For me, this was Roy Keane. He was phenomenal in this game. He got a brace. Mm. He was brilliant. And I remember watching this going, wow. Uh, he really, I think he had a point to prove. And it's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, how Iceland was so polarizing for Roy Keane. The home game, he's booed, you know, and he was booed severely. And he, you know, it was a bit, bit shit for him. And then the game in Reykjavik, and he is absolutely outstanding and he really kind of redeemed himself he was superb that night or that afternoon yeah, yeah. it's just that's the shame of it really because it, you know less than a month later then he, he does the the cruise ship he was just a trip Halland, yeah absolute flying you know yeah so um, we played we played lithuania away didn't we at that stage and again a must win and we just pipped them in the end and then yeah i think it was about two weeks later he did the cruise ship Holland. Holland uh, was marking them then, and then we know what happened with, with that a couple of years later. Yeah. Yeah, that was a bit... Jesus. I, I always remember having an argument with my granddad about that. My grandfather was a corkman, by the way, so, you know, Roy Keane couldn't do anything wrong. And I remember the whole Holland thing. He was trying to defend uh, Roy Keane, you know, when he when he basically took his leg out. And he's like, oh, you know, he he, he, he that's revenge, son, because, you know, he... He done Roy Keane, didn't he? He injured Roy Keane and he, he broke him up, so he got revenge. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I realised, <laughs> no, he he didn't. He tried to trip up Alan and he'd done it to himself. And then Alan obviously wound him up. No, he didn't, son. That's not what happened. He broke Roy Keane up when he got revenge. Really <laughs> Unsportsmanlike behaviour, I think that's that. That was the thing, wasn't it? When, when I, I, as a United fan, I remember like Keane going down. Uh, I think it was that. It was that Ellen Road. I think. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, and um, you know, and then Worthington and Harland came over and were shouting at King because he was obviously lo- lying prone on the floor, which isn't very Roy-like. 
And that was the whole thing that kind of cut back with Roy years later was that they were accusing him of diving and, and feigning injury when he knew that he'd done his cruciate. So he knew how long he was going to be out of the game for. So that was the most disappointing thing for him. Um, yeah, and then obviously there's lots of rumours and myths later on. Well, it's a myth, isn't it, really, that he ruined, he, he got his retribution mm. against Haaland years later and he never played again, which isn't true at all. No. So. <laughs> and what uh, kind of impact did that injury have, lads? Because, you know, there was that one-all draw with Romania, which was a dead rubber. I think Romania won the route by about 10 points or something stupid like that. But yeah. coming into the playoff, um, we drew Belgium and... Correct me if I'm wrong, lads, and just keep in mind, I was only about five or six when this happened, but Belgium certainly weren't the superpower they are now, but no. in the in the World Cup draw, they're one of the more favoured teams that we that we could have gotten compared to the other opponents. Yeah, it was, a, it was a handy draw. I remember Italy got Russia. I remember that. Um, I think England, yeah, because England uh, pipped Italy to it. So, yeah, it, w- it wasn't too bad. It was actually a decent um, draw. We weren't fearing them too much. Um, I remember it was funny going through my notes here again. Liam Brady and Frank Stapleton were almost demanding that Paul McGrath be recalled uh, for the game. Um, I I did watch this game, but uh, on a personal note, I remember I was in the hospice with my grandmother at the time, and I, it wasn't really on the forefront of my mind. And I remember watching Dennis Aaron with a gorgeous free kick. Yeah, it was beautiful on the seventh minute. And then um, they equalised. It wasn't a very good performance by Ireland. You know, you, you never want to concede in a playoff. And yeah, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't terrific. Um, we should be doing better against Belgium. But uh, thankfully... Poor goal to concede, wasn't it? Ian Hart probably should have closed it down and wasn't much yeah. pace in it either. Shea Given arguably could have saved it. So definitely an avoidable goal. Yeah. And wasn't there a bit of a bust up in the, in the goal mouth for... For Ireland as well. I think David Connolly had a chance and the Tony Cascarino kind of bundled the keeper into the goal or something like that. So there was a bit of there was a bit of uh, unnecessary drama in there as well. Yeah, I love that screaming at the player. You see that McCarthy's park, don't you? You scream at the player, shut up. And uh, <laughs> when, when they're sitting back with a beer and sort of going over it and having a bit of crack, uh Evan Taff, Evans and Packy Bonner and and Mick. That 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 that'd be a good night out, I'd say, those three lads. <laughs> few stories to be told love to be applying the wall of that Jesus. and then the away leg lads absolute heartbreak under the circumstances so talk us through that talk us talk to young fans like myself through that because um even watching it back horrendous weather looked like it was absolutely pissing rain you're going in with high hopes early goal there from belgium equalizer from ray houghton what kind of happened from there we were fucking robbed <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember watching this. Um, I it wasn't a great week for me because I just lost my grandmother like three days uh, previous. So I was thinking, you know, God's going to shine on me now, and we're going to get a bit of fortune, and we're going to qualify. Uh, absolutely not. Um, I remember just, yeah, it was a, it was an atrocious night. Uh, Oliviera got a goal. I think it was a bit of a mix up at the back, and he just slot into an empty net. Then Ray Houghton came on as a sub, I believe, I could be wrong, and he got a, a header again. What was it with him and these headers? And he got a lovely header. Only five uh, foot six, scoring yeah. a lot of headers, yeah. Yeah, great header. That was, that was his last game, wasn't it? That was his last game. That was Townsend's yeah. last game. I think David Kelly as well was on the bench, and, and he was never uh, called up again. And, yeah, basically, Luke Nilla scored from a goal that should have been an Ireland throw, but it was actually a Belgian throw. Yeah. And David Connolly then I think he had come on as a sub and he had sort of flittered away a little bit. He, he was really banging the goals in for us. And then all of a sudden, you know, he had a bit of a dip in form and then you're thinking, right, here's your chance. Go on there, do something first. And he gets sent off and it was just horrible, but we were really good that night. Um, I thought anyway, and I think that performance could have saved Mick. If I'm honest, I think there was a little bit of, of hope there, you know, when, when we played and people thought, okay, we didn't qualify, but, you know, we brought in so many young players. You know, Shea Gim was in goal that night. Yeah. I think it was like 21. 21 or something, yeah. Yeah. You know, we had Ian Hart. We, we had such good young players. And, and it was starting, it didn't quite click yet, but it was starting to click. And I think that was the important thing. And I think there's a very important lesson from anybody listening to this now in terms of Stephen Kenny. Even if he doesn't qualify this year, for the World Cup, if we end on a positive note and you see signs, shoots of green grass, then, you know, 
you got to give the guy a chance. If there's hope, they got to give the guy a chance. And thankfully, the FAI did with Mick. There's parallels, isn't there? I mean, there's this whole golden generation coming through now that Kenny Kenny would have had it under 21 level. And similar with Mick, he would have brought through the likes of Shea Gibbon. He would have brought through the likes of Ian Hart. And they did, as he was on record saying at the start of the campaign, they did shape the national team for the guts of a decade. Well, Jesus, I mean, Gibbon went two decades. Um, yeah. We just have a little, a little audio um, from after that game, just Mick's reaction in classic Mick fashion. An hour and a half after the match, Describe the 10, 15 minutes or so in the dressing room when you got back in there tonight. Oh, <laughs> I lashed the coffee mugs around. I'm sure they'll be sending me a bill because I booted one and my foot was stuck up the fucking thing for about 15 minutes, I think. It was stuck to my foot. There's coffee everywhere. I've given everything a lash. and uh, I'd, I'd kept it until I got in the dressing room and I was livid. I was seething, I was. But when the lads came in, I, I changed very quickly. I felt, I felt desperately sorry for them. They came in, they have given a lot. Uh, given a lot for me, they gave given a lot for themselves, for Ireland. And I was very proud of them. So that kind of, that kind of sums up the mood, lads, after the game. I mean, p- putting a foot through a coffee cup is uh, probably an understatement for Mick. And as we said, it was probably a sign of things to come and a sign of the, the team for the next decade. I mean, it did, it did have a massive bearing on the team for, for a long time after that. So it was, it was a dramatic campaign and one filled with so many things on and off the pitch, but certainly shaped this team. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it, it was a strange one as well, I think. You know, again, he, he, like you said just there, when we, you know, they, the, what usually happens, some of these older players... They get to the last game of their campaign, um, and that's it. You know, it, I think it's in a what it kind of gives closure to some of these players in a way that they. I think that we, we kind of forget about that sometimes as fans that when players are kind of getting to the end of their kind of careers and they 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 must find it quite challenging for themselves and they are going oh I'll stay for this campaign and stay for this campaign and you know that was a bit of an end of an era really with like you said Houghton and um, a few of them calling calling it a day. Um, and finishing up, and again, it's a sad way for them to kind of go out. I mean, I remember though, we had a lot of high hopes as Irish fans in in Connolly, who was London Irish, so I'll give him a bit of a name drop in there from, uh, you know, born in Willesden up the road from us. Um, you know, and he's actually a son of uh, of a uh, of Tom Connolly, who played at Wembley Stadium for London in a in a hurling match many many years ago, and they yeah. also beat um, the one at Dopey as well. They beat Galway, famously London did, uh, in a, in a All-Ireland at one time, uh, All-Ireland quarter-final, I think they beat them, which was a famous result in uh, JAA. But um, yeah, and, and David Connolly was his son. And he, I, I remember so much hype about him. Do you remember he was at Feyenoord? Yeah, was he was. a big thing because he went to Feyenoord and, and then he and he got a hat-trick as, as well on uh, early yeah. on in his kind of time. And I think, I remember I think he went, the, didn't he go on loan to the second division and he scored, I think he scored yeah. more goals than he had appearances or something yeah, like that. I mean, look, it's still, yeah. Dutch second division, but it just showed yeah. how prolific he was even, even at that level. He was yeah. a terrific striker. I mean, his goal against uh, the United States, anybody watching this, go on YouTube, check it out. What a finish, like real, really quality finish. I, I really expected huge things. He got Watford, wasn't he? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, I mean, we really did. I mean, that to that Belgian game, you know, that was a big roll of the dice putting him on then. Um, and I know he got sent off, but um, yeah. you know, I remember that night. Yeah, I mean, I think actually, when I the first game I can kind of remember uh, going to Lansdowne, um, and I wasn't a kid, but <laughs> was probably the playoff home game, the Belgian one. I mean, it was kind of you. I give my age away, kind of early uni years, and uh, yeah, had a good good crack out in Dublin that night. Anyway. Um, that but that was the start of something very special, yeah. And that was it, yeah. But um, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, second yeah. consecutive playoff loss as well. I mean, it's just, just even diving into the archives, and even someone of my age, you know, who's, who's, you know, who doesn't really remember the '90s because it was only a child. But I mean, looking at that, I mean, three consecutive playoffs, four consecutive playoffs, really, until we got one. It's, it's, um, it's certainly something. But even that experience, say for the likes of Shea Given or the likes of Ian Hart, it probably stood to them in 2002. Yeah, definitely. I think like with the with the pressure of you know it, it was kind of do or die, isn't it, in those games? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, the, you, you've got to be clever and not concede at home uh, in, your, in the games if you can. Um, but but yeah, it was, it was, I just think a real change in the guard, even with players coming in. If you look at the end of that that campaign, 
some players who are really going to, you know, kind of getting a bit of a presence in the team, um, you know, and a bit of youth. If you think of the, the age of that time where we started off from average age, you know, and, and we've got Kenny Cunningham coming in now, different types of players as well. Uh, yeah. Gary Kelly's in there, Ian Hart, real quality players who, again, were, were starting to play. They were playing at a high level. You know, they were, Leeds were quite competitive then in the Premiership as well. Um, and, yeah, and, I mean, you know, you know, it wasn't a bad time really. It was we had we had some real like we had players at high profile clubs, which I know we don't have now, but we did then. So, what what I, what I found uh, about the campaign was that it was a team and its manager learning, mm. learning on the job. And Mick had to learn on the job. He's very inexperienced. You know, there's a picture of him in. Uh, I think it's I think it's actually oh, is it a one nil? Lost Romania, I think it is in Bucharest, where you see him flipping off the cameraman. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, just <laughs> sort of things that you know you shouldn't do. And you know, you know, we've all met Mick. He's a lovely, lovely guy. I, 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 I really like Mick. Um, but he, but he's got that about him. You know, but he's got that restraint now. He's a bit older and wiser, but he's younger. He's punching people on the pitch and he's elbowing and he's pulling Hadji's jersey off. Genoa, from, you know? from, from the get-go in that campaign, he was very hostile towards you know, yeah. Tom Humphreys and, and other journalists, you know, and I mean, not, not that we've seen that in recent years, you know, he's always been like any modern day manager, you know, there's, there's defensive and then, I mean, some of the stuff, I mean, some of the bluntness towards some of the journalists at the start of that campaign, I mean, there's a lot of archives about it, like it's, it's yeah. unbelievable to see for such a young manager as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting as well. You bring it back to kind of modern day with, with um, Stephen Kenny and, you know, how he is kind of perceived by the press. And, you know, we know there's a bit of a, we, we I think, I, I believe anyway, I think you're in agreement, some of you are with, uh, you know, there's a bit of an agenda against him at times, you know, they're, they're trying to trip him up. I know they, there's been a bit of criticism of his kind of demeaning with the press and how uh, I basically see it as that he's far too honest, Stephen Kenny, and he's too detailed in his replies. Which comes again, I think, uh, is reflective of his experience. I know he's an experienced manager, but you know Mick. Now, when you see Mick being interviewed now, he he, he has the stock answers ready, yeah. and, and that's all he's going to give you. He's only going to give you as much as he wants. Whereas I think Stephen Kenny, in a way, sometimes I know we don't want to go off on this kind of tangent, but Stephen Kenny sometimes seems to be kind of in a way justifying or or giving too much of a detailed thing to really give his thinking out there uh, to yeah. kind of show that he knows what he's doing. Whereas Mick, I think that's very similar to Mick early days, but, but Mick was coming off the back of probably criticism as a player. You know, he wasn't the most gifted player, but what he did on the pitch and the fight he put into everything and, and he epitomised like Jack's no-nonsense approach to everything. And I mean, you look at that 1990 World Cup with Mick as a player, like some of them challenges, the, the, the ball the ball might be there to be played, but, you know, Mick wasn't going to get... Mick, yeah, I mean, it's just brilliant, but... I mean, he just epitomised Irish fight at that at that time. But I think when he comes to the press very early on in it, he just probably thought uh, he probably was a bit too defensive in it. That he he just thought they're going to come for me. They're going to come for me. So he was flippant with them, and he wasn't great engaging with them and stuff like that. And then I think you know he he probably just felt a bit aggrieved that you know he that he had to justify again. I think with his age as well, it was very very relevant. Like it's incredible thinking that he was such a young international manager. Yeah. yeah, and something that something maybe worth mentioning as well. He was actually linked with the Celtic job in the middle of that campaign, wasn't he? Linked with the Wolves yeah. job as well, which he eventually took about a decade later. But but two jobs that he could have he could have left for in amongst all this shit, in amongst all your Macedonians, in amongst your fallouts with Aldridge, in in amongst all your McGrath and your Townsend issues. So what I what I found amazing is what I found amazing as well. Go through the research. I totally forgot about this. Um, Sort of skipped over, but Mick got banned by the FA uh, for receiving FA Cup final tickets for ten years. Um, he had because I think every manager gets like FA Cup final tickets or whatever. I don't know what way it works, but he had four of them, and there were sixty pound tickets. And apparently, he gave them to a mate of his, and they ended up being uh, flogged to Norwegian fans 
uh, for 350 <laughs> quid each and he got banned for, t- for 10 years over it and he, he, sa- he said he goes well this is, look my mate told me that they were for him and you know he sold them I, I, I could see that happening by the way genuinely I could see that happening and he says even though I had to give them to Mother Teresa I wouldn't have got away with it so um, <laughs> I don't think he, I don't think he means Niall Quinn either but uh, yeah just just amazing when you, when you see this Mick McCarthy he's so raw I love it in a way. Like he's got an edge to him. He he's not backwards about coming forward. He never is anyway. But he's so uncontrolled, you know. And you see him in two thousand two, and he's having a barbecue with the press because he knows it's best to have them on board. Yeah, flew over with them as well. Flew over with them as well. Yeah. And then you know you see him like in ninety six, and he's like giving your man stick, and you know about oh you shouldn't be asking that game of football because you don't know the difference um, between the byline and crosses. Yeah, brilliant. You know what I mean absolutely ph- phenomenal um but yeah it's i, I love this period of Nick mccarthy because it, it was just box office and his bust up with jim beglin and you know jim had criticized him because amy Dunphy had walked off um yeah. the Liechtenstein game at home because of a prey match they used to be on sports stadium on the saturday and he wasn't happy with it so he says no i'm not i'm not coming on to i'm not coming on to the show so they had jim beglin instead and jim beglin had said some things that had annoyed mick so after the 2-1 win uh, in Lithuania, in Vilnius, uh, he, he was sent down, and, and Jim has spoken about this, and he goes, oh, I was a setup. He goes, I was sent down by RT from the commentary box. He was sent down to do the interview. Now, that doesn't happen, because you have your touchline reporter, Tony O'Donoghue, Stephen Alkin, or whatever. But he was sent down. So somebody was like, yes, this is, you know, someone either doesn't like Jim, or this is going to be great telly. And uh, basically, that's when he goes, I'm not going to shake your hand, Jim. You made your fucking bed with me. You can lie in it as far as I can sit, you know, and all this. <laughs> You're thinking, Christ, you know, and, and poor Jim gets on with it because he's a pro, you know, and so does Mick, to be fair. But just seeing that is just, uh, yeah, this is a real fun time for me. Yeah, so an interesting campaign all around. And I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the drama on the pitch was certainly matched by the drama off the pitch. And really think that that campaign was character building for the Ireland team and, you know, set them up nicely for the, the next decade. And, you know, a big bulk of that team was part of the team that qualified in 2002. So even as painful as that playoff defeat was, it certainly stood to them in Tehran in 2001. So that concludes our first episode of the managerial era series. So that was Mick McCarthy's first campaign, the 1998 World Cup qualifiers. So in the next episode, we'll be looking at the Euro 2000 qualifiers, which was also drama filled and had a lot of uh, important bearings on, on future events. So as always, if you have any feedback or any comments for us or anything that you'd like discussed in the next episode, which will be the Euro 2000 qualifying campaign, let us know, keep us posted, and until next time, come on you boys in green.